Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Welcome back, Debo. Always happy to be here. Whirlwind trip to see you in New York and Miami last week and back in the saddle. Yes, you actually, you, you probably got a lot of intel. You spent some time in New York. You were on the public tech beat. You spent a little time in South Beach on the private tech beat here. We're going to cover all of those Q1 earnings that we saw last week since we were last with you. Also, some very interesting names that I know you're very focused on. You've been reporting all day here on Uber's results and their bang-up results. And I want to kind of drill down on some of the metrics. You often push back at me and some other folks who are on your programming uh, who refer to profitability, but in the terms of adjusted and it really feels like Uber is crossing a little bit of a Rubicon as it relates to gap profitability. So I want to hit on that. We also have a great interview coming up. Dan Niles, the founder and portfolio manager of Saturi Fund. Dan's a guy that I have known for an awful long time. D, I go all the way back when he was a tech analyst at Robertson Stevens in the late 90s covering semis and hardware. And he was like poster child for big tech um, back in the day. And now he runs this fund that is a long, short, large cap, primarily tech focused fund. He's also a guy that you've had on Tech Check for years. Talk to me a little bit um, about Dan and your relationship with him. Oh, let me first say that DanNiles.com is a legend. Um, he is a wonderful person. Also, I should add, who we found out he was coming on Tech Check. And then one time we were going to do the CNBC Pro Talk and figured out that we lived a block away from each other. So that led to us and his wonderful wife and my husband playing cards sometime. If he's listening to this, I just want to say that if we had finished that last game, we would have beat him. And I'll leave it there. His market predictions and market analysis, much better than his card game. Well, you know, it's funny. He was one of the first minted, like, you know, dot-com era tech analysts. What I always found interesting about Dan is that, you know, he wasn't covering the internet. He was covering the nuts and bolts of the internet when you think about semis and components. And then you think about his ability ability to also cover um, hardware as it related. He covered Apple and Dell and he made some huge calls back in the day and he moved stocks like you wouldn't believe. And he had a, a huge term because he went to Lehman and he was just a monster at, at Newberger Berman. So I'm really psyched to reconnect with Dan and, and thanks for uh, the send off from TechCheck because I've gotten to see him on your programming a lot over the last few years. And he is often prescient. He is ahead of the curve when it comes to tech trends. And he's not afraid to disagree with the majority. And for as long as I've been interviewing him on TechCheck, he has been dead right. He takes short and long positions, but he watches things and he sees things so, so closely. And he's been truly one of the most rational voices that we've had, I think, on our air over the last few years. 
And he's also been really transparent when he comes on and he gets something wrong. He's happy to come back and say why he got it wrong. But he's also, like you said, uh, uh, you know, really willing and able to make predictions. All right, let's talk about Uber here, because this is one that we're recording this Tuesday afternoon. The stock's up 11% as we speak. They just reported their quarter. Uh, Dara Karashari, he's out there um, talking to the press and he sounds fairly bullish. And some of the things that he's been saying about just consumer trends that they're seeing, it kind of flies in the face of some other things that we've seen. D, what What's your take on this one? Because coming into the print, um, you know, the stock has acted fairly well this year. You know, analysts universally love this stock. 42 buys is per fact set, only four holds um, and two sells here. And to see a stock up 11% with that much support already from the sell side, it means that the buy side was a little bit behind this one. And so coming into the print here, I mean, they had set targets as it related to EBITDA um, profitability, as it related to free cash flow. They had hit those. Now Dara is saying they are going to be gap profitable um, this year. The market is taking that to heart. Music to my ears, as you know, Dan, for a long time, I've, I've pounded the table and said adjusted EBITDA is not real profitability. And I say that to investors and I say that to Dara Khosr Shahi himself. We've had a lot of really good conversations about what markets are looking for, what Silicon Valley might be looking for. And I applaud his transparency, and he's been saying this for a long time. Even when he was talking about adjusted EBITDA, he reached that target sooner than you know he had predicted. And instead of kind of basking in that, he's looking ahead to gap profitability. Um, there was also a few lines in the earnings release about stock-based compensation because I even took issue with their free cash flow. Yes, you achieved it, but look at how much of that is stock-based compensation. So I think that you know. Slowly but surely, um, they're delivering. He is delivering. He's he is a Wall Street operator, and I think that that has been fine. And I like. I wonder what your opinion is, Dan, because this is still a stock, even with the big you know jump up today. It's trading at around thirty six bucks and change. That is still almost ten dollars below its IPO price. So, what do you look for in an investment? Do you want something that's profitable, or do you want something that's profitable and innovative? Is Uber both, or only one, or none? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I think that their ability to kind of squash the competition as it relates to Lyft, and we know what's gone on there. I mean, Lyft is literally like a rounding error on them from a standpoint of, of revenue, but also from just market share. And then when you think of market cap, I mean, this thing literally has like a $3 billion enterprise value. Think about that. Right today, I mean, Uber has gained, you know, $6 billion in enterprise value just on the ability to guide towards um, that gap profitability, which you have been all over, Debo. So I got to give you um, a lot of credit. One of the first times you came on here, I made the mistake of quoting some a company that said was about to be uh, you know profitable. You said, hold on a second, that, that adjusted profits. The other thing I'd say about Uber is that you know it appears that their margins have troughed um, a little bit. So this was a company that was doing you know 50% plus gross margins in the couple of years after um, they had um, IPO'd. And so I think that's also something that investors like to see. And then obviously what he had to say about delivery and Uber Eats. And when you just think of just just how well they are doing in that department. I know that obviously it kept them a bit afloat during the pandemic when people weren't taking the rides, but their ability to kind of maintain share and kind of move towards um, further profitability there. I think that is part of this story and the global part of it. I know that a lot of investors, at least folks like me and just talking about it uh, a couple of years ago back um, on Fast Money, they really, you know, I kind of said, well, Lyft, I really like this kind of domestic, singly focused on ride share here. And that's just been dead wrong. I mean, I've just been really wrong on that. The last thing I'll just say is that 
Lyft might start looking kind of interesting here just on the enterprise value and what we know, the data that they have as it relates to rideshare, as some of these other big platform companies think about move towards like robo taxis and, and the like here, autonomous fleets. I mean, this could be kind of interesting. So just curious, like, does this cause you to like take another look at Lyft? Because we know that that quarter was disastrous. We know that there's new management in there. And it really feels like maybe this is just kind of so bad that it's good at some point. Let me quickly go back to something you said. You said Uber beat Lyft. I think that Lyft killed Lyft. I think that Uber benefited because Lyft just took its eye off the ball. And you see this management change now. Um, I interviewed the new CEO who was, you know, still finding his feet. I I don't know. I'm not really sure what to expect from him. We'll have to see. They're going to report soon. Um, but he talked about pricing competitively with Uber. And again, it just goes back to this industry that is so asset light in a weird way, but so deeply unprofitable um, because of you know the way that it counts its drivers and insurance costs and all those different things. So um, I think, Dan, were you saying that Lyft might be interesting as a target? Is that what yeah, you were implying? Like as like a strategic target, just because again, you know, we don't likely see a lot of this sort of MA, strategic MA, especially in this regulatory environment when like things are at their lows. But it just seems to me kind of interesting for a whole host of reasons when you talk about what Elon Musk has prob- uh, promised as far as robo taxis and the like. Here we know that, you know, some of the, the OEMs in Detroit have had interest in self driving um, sort of issues. I know that you know, Lyft had a partnership um, with Ford for a while. So, you know, like, listen, sometimes when things are down and out, I tend to be a bit contrarian. And this one, to me, I feel like there's very little downside, especially with uh, new management in there. Have you seen the videos coming out of San Francisco? I think it's GM's cruise. People are taking rides, totally driverless rides. And I think Lyft has an investment from them in the past. So that could be an interesting tie up given, as you said, all the data that Lyft has. But remember, this is a company that's still controlled by its founders. Even though there's a new CEO, I asked him directly, does anything about the dual class share structure change? Is that going to sunset? No. So how much can he really do? Are the founders willing to sell? They were able to step back? I don't know. Maybe. You asked all the tough questions. That interview was on Fast Money, um, and I was loving it because I knew that you just had this opportunity. And listen, I, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, he just kind of stuck in. You know, you kind of hung in there, and he took the questions here. Just going back to Uber really quickly. I mean, this thing, you know, when I look at it bottoming out at some point, um, it has a lot of characteristics that we saw in Netflix and Meta last year. That it bottomed out well before the Nasdaq bottomed out in 2022, so mid last year. And so I think some of the things that Dara was saying to investors and the street was kind of resonating and about cost cuts and what he's saying now about headcount reduction and what they're seeing as far as with this like this expected consumer slowdown um you know to me this remains like a sort of fluid situation i look at the series of higher lows that the stock has put in over the last call it six to nine months and it's definitely very constructive and to see the reaction to what they had to say today, I think is pretty good. I'm not chasing the stock up 15% um, in a week, but this is one that I think I would look to buy um, on pullbacks because you know if you look at that top line growth that they have, I think the multiple of earnings um, is looking pretty interesting to me, especially if we're going to see increased profitability. Well, let me ask you something then. When you say that it's looking constructive, do you think that Uber could ultimately be worth more than $100 billion? Is this a tech company? Is it disruptive? Or does it settle out somewhere below that as a utility? You know, and a really good one for calling taxis. 
Yeah. Well, I look at just kind of also on a multiple to sales at about two times here and look at some of these kind of mega cap tech stocks, which have not had a hard time growing, you know, into like mid to high single digits, multiples of sales, you know, and then on the flip side of that, you know, we have an NVIDIA that crossed $700 billion in market cap uh, yesterday for the first time in a little more than a year, trading at 23 times sales. So I guess to your point is if the, um, you know, the service that they're providing is deemed to be a commodity, it will never grow into a mid single digit sort of multiple multiple of sales. But if that profitability really starts to kick up and they're able to kind of grow their margins back towards 50%, this will easily be over a $100 billion market cap company. So to me, I, I do find this a very unique story. And there's plenty of stories in mega cap tech that I do not find is interesting because of their ability to kind of maintain certain valuations at this interest rate environment. And especially as you're listening to this, the Fed is going to be coming out with their um, you know kind of rate decision here. And listen, if we hear higher from longer. And you and I talked about this a little bit last week. I just think that this is the sort of thing that may cause some investors in a slower growth environment to rethink some of the multiples that we've seen off the lows from last year and some of these names. One more question for you. Did you see the Wall Street Journal um, article about Dara Khosr Shahi driving Ubers under David Kay? Yes. Yeah. So pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. It was okay. It was that's cool. But it was five years in or whatever, how many years into his tenure as CEO. And I also I just want to say, because I don't think enough people know this, because they don't seek publicity for this, the Lyft co-founders drive every year for years since the inception of the company on New Year's Eve. And they don't ask a reporter to come along with it. They just do that because they want to know. And I think that that is something like they are innovators, but they lost the plot. Um, but they have done things like that all along, which is why I think you liked Lyft at one point too. That focus, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, they they kind of they didn't keep up in terms of running the company, the operations that Dara Khosr Shahi does have. But I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I like those guys. I like like Logan and John. I think those guys are are really great founders. And again, I like you gotta you gotta apply to any any like listen. They were always number two, and they were they be just yeah. became a more distant number two. They tried to hang in there, and their ability to kind of hang it up a little bit. I'm sure they're supportive behind the scenes. So um, again, that lift is one that I just think look from a strategic standpoint could be very unique. Not because the business is humming in any way, shape, or form, but because what they've built over the last ten years, and even though being a very distant number two. I think there's probably strategic M&A in their future. All right, let's hit another one. This is a really interesting story. So as we're speaking right now, Chegg, okay, the online education company that was clearly a darling during the pandemic, right? Anything work from home, school from home, work out from home, uh, you know, order from home, whatever the hell it is, right? So this stock has absolutely gotten killed. It's down 40% today. They come out and they say that chat GPT is destroying their business. And what's interesting to me about this thing, it's down 65% on the year. It's got a billion dollars market cap. That's not why we're talking about it because it's interesting. But you know, when we think about some of these fintech models, we're definitely all the rage in 2020 and 2021. And the information had an article on a bunch of these, the upstarts and the Carvanas and, and some of these other buy now, pay later names, you know, they were typing their use of AI tools right back in the day to make better lending decisions. And that was just an embedded premium in those names. And people didn't give a shit what they were trading at multiples to anything back then. This is, you know, a year and a half ago maybe two years or so, and they've all come crashing down. So I think it's interesting on the flip side of this that you have companies now like Chegg blaming 
AI tools, right, for their demise here. And this one's kind of, and Dan Rosenzweig, who's the CEO of this company, he's been around a long time. He's a smart guy and he knows a lot about tech. How does this story kind of sit with you a little bit? Because it looks like, you know, two sides of a coin. But it's so illustrative of the threat and the opportunity of artificial intelligence, right? I mean, anyone, you talk to anyone here in the Bay Area, they'll say, oh, we've been using it for decades already. But this is a unique moment. This is when it captures the consumer's imagination. It's like, sure, there were smartphones before the iPhone, but the iPhone changed absolutely everything about how we work and how we even conduct our lives. And, you know, that's that's essentially what generative AI is doing now. Yes, earlier forms that all the tech companies have already been using, the algorithms we see on Netflix, on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. That certainly changed it, but it was kind of a slow change um, that we didn't even really notice. It was like boiling in a pot. Now with ChatGPT and Bard, um, it's such a huge platform shift that we're going to, it's amazing to me too, to see Chegg, but we're going to find out that entire business models are going to be eviscerated by this platform shift and how quickly it's happening. And on the Chegg side, it's because their users are using chat GPT to do their homework. They're no longer going to Chegg. And I really think this is just the start of it. And Chegg could be totally fine. Dan Rosenzweig says that they're going to use chat GPT to battle chat GPT, which is basically what anyone under threat from generative AI says. We're going to use it against. It's smart. If you just harness it in the right way. We'll see though. This is very, very early. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, listen, it's kind of hard to see. And this kind of brings me back to about 20 years ago, kind of in the throes of the kind of post.com um, bear market that we had is like some of these names that were so well loved, you know, on their way to really zero. And, and, you know, when you see stocks down 90 some percent, and we're starting to see that more, I think a lot of investors are kind of new to the market. That's not something that they really have seen a whole heck of a lot. We've seen it in some of these regional banks that, you know, like felt pretty secure, right? And we've seen them go to zero. Um, we've seen some of these fintech models that we talked about lose 90 some percent. And, you know, it's not just the little ones. When I think of, you know, I'm looking at Square right now. Square is down, you know, more than seven, eight percent on the year. You know, that stock has lost 80 some percent from its all time highs. I mean, there's a lot of names that are starting to flash from big gains in the first couple months of the year after getting destroyed in 2022 to now being down on the year. And that to me, when I look at the NASDAQ, uh, Debo, you know, still up 15%, the NASDAQ 100, which we know the top seven names make up 45% of the weight. But I'm seeing a lot of stocks, whether it be in cybersecurity, whether it be some of these kind of SaaS darlings, you know, kind of go down on the year like a snowflake. This was one of the poster children, right, for this kind of pandemic sort of like rally that we had in big tech names. And this was a recent IPO and it's run by a guy that everybody in the Valley just absolutely reveres and it can't get out of its own way in 2023. So I just find... I think I see some kind of weakening under the hood and I see a further concentration in some of the mega cap names here, which seems unhealthy to me right here. It seems a little risky, right? Because if any of these names like Apple still has to report this week, if it kind of blows its quarter, that has huge ramifications. But I also wonder, Dan, if on the flip side, maybe that's a healthy sign or an endorsement of this rally so far, because if the NASDAQ's keeping its gains, but we were wondering a few months ago why all of these names were up with low profitability, the momentum stocks that reached you know, valuation highs during the pandemic. Um, I also wonder, something I covered this week was the ARM IPO and the J&J spinoff. I mean, also the fact that companies are testing out the IPO waters again 
that could also be a healthy sign, right? You have new issuances. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, I will tell you this though, that in, in an environment like this, you, you could see portfolio managers have to make room for some big names and, and that doesn't always, it might bode well for the, for the kind of new kid on the block, but it may not uh, bode well for some of the stories that people just been hanging on to. Um, so, you know, again, it'll be interesting to see when that first IPO comes in 2023, a meaningful IPO here in the U.S. and how it's marketed because we have not had a proper marketing process, right, since the start of the pandemic. And it will also be interesting to see how that process has changed a little bit. All right, we got to hit this one before we get out of here, before I get to Dan Niles here. Amazon um, reported Thursday after the close, the stock was trading uh, north of 120. It was like 123. It was trading at the highest levels, I think since September, okay? And so it bottomed out somewhere about 81 in late December, um, early January. And then when they gave their Q2 guidance for AWS, the stock reversed, gave it all back. Here we are trading at about 103 um, or so. What was your takeaway? way about that because we talked you had this great pre preview on all the hyperscalers as we were talking about what microsoft cloud was going to do what google cloud was going to do what amazon was going to do here and when you think about their guidance for q2 and you actually made a really great point that amazon is very exposed to small and medium sort of businesses so that q q q2 guide really spooked tech investors and i think you know to your point about apple i mean i think what we saw out of microsoft out, out of meta out of google might have been as good as it gets for this kind of q one reporting um, period. So I'm just curious, did you think that was overdone, at least the pop to the upside and then the reversal and its inability to kind of get back on its horse? I think that pop was on relief, right? We just wanted to get all of these big tech reports out of the way. And if they managed to hold somewhat steady, stabilized, that was good enough for the market. But we've talked about this, how critical cloud is to the whole Amazon ecosystem. It has been the profit engine. So when the CFO came on the call and said, you know, we're expecting it to decline a further 5%. That brings AWS growth into, right, the early, the low teens. And it's never been there. It was at 40%, I think, just last year or a year and a half ago. So that is also a reflection of that profit engine of Amazon, but also perhaps the enterprise spending the economy at large, how other companies feel about the economy and their spending plans. Was it overblown? Um, I might be willing to say yes. I, what do you think, Dan? Because Amazon is more than AWS at the same time. And there's another profit engine in advertising, which is proving to be more resilient. And even online sales are looking better. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. And, and you have that tough job. Um, oh, your job is a much tougher than mine at that 515, 520 mark as those results are coming out and you have to parse through them live on TV and you're asked for your take and you have what is expected. We don't always know what the buy side um, is expecting. And we know that a lot of these stocks trade in the post market based on those sorts of expectations. I was looking at the quarter. I was looking at most of the metrics and it looked pretty good, especially relative to what people were worried about, some of the macro trends um, in Q two or excuse me in q1 and then when they gave the guidance i mean it seemed really clear to me we were talking about it in the break i was like that's it i looked at melissa i was like that's it i would think we're going to look back in two three four months and say that was the canary in the coal mine and you know when you think about microsoft and you think about google and what they were able to do in cloud i'm curious is like they're clearly taking some share they're also exposed to some different customer bases as we just mentioned and their businesses their revenues are just kind of 
you know, they're, they're much more intertied now with all the, the, the cloud sort of stuff and the productivity tools and everything like that. So, you know, they might have been masking some of the sort of weakness that Amazon was speaking to, or Amazon is probably trying to take them all down because they're taking share too. Curious your, like, your thoughts on that, because I know that you know this, most investors are really focused on that number in AWS where that growth has decelerated meaningfully, right, from that 40 plus pound to somewhere in the teens that could look like low teens. Low teens. You know, I actually, I get on a media call right after the earnings break. I've got like five phones in my hand when a company like Amazon or Alphabet, one of the big tech companies are reporting. And I got on the phone with the CFO, Brian Olsowski, and this was before he said that AWS growth was going to decelerate further. And I asked him, you know, what are you seeing in terms of competitive pressure wise? Is it the macro economy or is it competitive pressure, what you're seeing from the other hyperscalers? And he answered pretty directly. He said, it's the macro. But then he went on to say, you know, later on the analyst call that AWS revenue growth would be down 500 basis points. So I didn't really buy it um, when he said that. And I thought it was interesting that they don't want to allow for that. Um, why would they? They're the number one position by far, of course, but Microsoft is coming for them. And I think there was a Morgan Stanley note that says, you know, it's actually Microsoft could be the bigger player a few years from now. So that is a serious problem for Amazon and also going back to our generative AI discussion, you know, Microsoft putting chat GBT and AI tools into a lot of what they do could give them the edge over Amazon that isn't talking a whole lot or nearly as much about those tools. Yeah. All right. Last thing, just, just a little, um, you just mentioned, you know, like IBM and some of these other like large cap tech names, uh, old school tech names, you know, Cisco was down a lot. It's been about down about 15% since CDW, um, pre-announced a, a pretty dire quarter. Um, and they're going to report May 3rd before the opening. So CDW, that'll be interesting to see what they have to say on the guidance. Cause it really did take down Cisco and a whole host of other kind of some hardware names. They're a computer um, reseller and they serve, uh, you know, they service businesses, governments, a big geographic kind of footprint too. So that's something I'm focused on this week. Um, other than Apple, all right, Debo, we covered a lot of ground here. I really appreciate you being back here with us. So everybody stick around for my conversation with Dan Niles. He's the portfolio manager and founder of Sotori Funds. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. Welcome back to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Dan Niles. He is the portfolio manager and founder of Satori Funds. You will also see him on CNBC and other media quite frequently. And also, you can find all of his great work at danniles.com. It's a great follow. We're going to be referencing a lot of his work over the course of this conversation. Dan, welcome to OK Computer. Thanks for having me on, Dan. All right. Well, listen, Dan and I go way, way back. If you're just listening to my conversation with Deirdre Bosa, obviously Dan is also a friend of Deirdre, but Dan was one of the, I, I got to say this, just one of the first all-star tech analysts in the late 90s into the 2000s. Dan, you were kind of one of those guys 
who is a must-talk to, must-follow. You were at Robertson Stevens when I first met you, which I think a lot of listeners might not know the name of that brokerage house, but you guys were like the axe in tech. And there was a handful of, of, of boutique sort of firms out in San Francisco um, that were just kind of, if you were a long, short equity guy like I was and you were covering tech, you had to be doing business with them and you had to talk to Dan Nile. So Dan, talk to us a little bit about how you came into the business and how you've become a long, short fund manager. And it's not just tech anymore. It sounds like you have serious macro chops here, but let's take it back 25 years and your time there as just kind of calling the shots. It was in semis, it was in hardware, and it was away from some of the stuff as far as internet, but these were great ways to play the internet trend back then. Yeah. So my background is I'm an electrical engineer by training. I've got a master's in double E. I worked at Digital Equipment Corporation. And for those viewers who don't know who, what that is, it was like the Google of its day back in the 80s. And so I started off in that world. And going to college, I met a girl. who That girl now is my wife. And she was doing some interesting research in M&A and bankruptcy models. And I found that research way more interesting than the stuff I was doing. And so I started investing in college, had some really informative experiences there, which shaped uh, my trading till now. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to give this investing thing a try. And was an investment banker for four years, sell side research for 10 years, which is where you and I met. And um, and I learned during that period because I was a sell side analyst from the mid 90s all the way till the early 2000s. So I saw that whole run up into the tech bubble. I saw that whole collapse on the other side. And that really taught me how important the macro was, because a lot of guys actually missed that. And that's when I kind of made my career where I said, you know, I think we're going into a recession and this could be bad and downgraded everything I covered, had no buy ratings on any stocks for a good year, year and a half, and um, then started my hedge fund uh, shortly thereafter, that 10-year stint, and you know, been running that ever since since 2004. So that's kind of the, the quick bio of Dan Niles. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and, and you just said informative, so I, I, I'm assuming there's a story there about some of your trading in college. Um, let, let, let's talk about that a little bit, because it's amazing when you look back, you know, just all the stuff that you didn't know back then. And, and sometimes you just have to learn the hard way. Absolutely. And so I grew up in Boston, in and around Boston, went to Boston University undergrad, you know, Stanford uh, graduate school. But you know, growing up there, you're in the heart of Peter Lynch, right? Fidelity Magellan during its glory days. And so when I started investing in college, you know, my wife and I were both going to school on scholarship, both pretty poor. You know, we scraped up $50 each, put it into a fund um, where you could buy fractional shares, which I'll always be grateful to Merrill Lynch for, um, if you couldn't actually buy a whole share of a company. And the first company we bought was sort of sticking to the Peter Lynch theme. We said, you know what, we think oil, the world's going to need more of it. And so we bought Standard Oil and it got taken out by British Petroleum. And so we made a bunch of money. The second trade, though, was the more important one, which is we bought Worlds of Wonder, which you may not remember, but back in the late 80s, uh, they produced this thing called laser tag, and then they produced the world's first talking teddy bear. And this was before Christmas, and they were two of the top 10 hottest toys going into the holidays. So I'm like, all right, well, we've got to buy this. Bought it, went into finals, lost track of it, You know, opened up the Wall Street Journal to try to figure out 
oh, you know, how's it doing? It's after Christmas. And I can't find it listed. And then I find out they went bankrupt over the holidays. And so when the reason was they couldn't produce the product and they had a great product, but they couldn't produce it. The management team wasn't particularly good. good and so the company went to nothing. And that experience has always stuck with me in that, you know, the quality of management teams, the quality of logistics, the quality of so many other things determine the success of a company, not just the product you have. And that has stuck with me because back then, you know, the amount of money we lost, which was probably like 75, 80 bucks or something, was a huge deal to me and uh, my wife. And so, but that's, I think, an important thing that people need to think about is, you know, just because you have, you're using X product does not mean it's a great investment. You know, what's really interesting about that, Dan, and, and you know, you and I saw plenty of companies go to zero in, in the aftermath of the dot-com crash. And I think that's something that a lot of folks who have just entered the markets, let's say in the last 15 years or so, have not experienced a little bit. You know, yes, during the financial crisis, we saw um, a handful of banks, you know, being taken under and essentially the equity got wiped out. But the fact that we are seeing that again, and the fact that we are seeing like today, as we're talking, you know, a, a company like Chegg is down 40% on the day, you know, the equity is down 90 some percent from its all time highs in, in the height of the pandemic. It's got a market cap of a billion dollars, which for all intents and purposes is zero. Right. And, and the warning that they're giving about chat GPT, how it, what is doing to their business is not likely to change things. Talk to me a little bit about the psychology of investors. You learned that experience long time ago with the amount of money that meant something to you. And I think in this day and age where, you know, when you think about you had to wait until you could find a newspaper that was reporting on it to let you know that that equity was zero. Now we have bank runs to the tune of 50 or $100 billion on a tweet or on a series of tweets here. Talk to me a little bit about the psychology that we will see seeping into investors' thought processes when they have enough stocks go to zero and you recognize that buying the dip doesn't always work. You know, it's a great point, Dan. So if you remember the 2000 tech bubble, the important thing to remember is what led up to it. So you had a 10-year uninterrupted expansion. And a lot of that was driven by easy money as well. You know, after 1998, the Russian bond default, you know, Alan Greenspan kind of at that point sort of the Fed put, you could argue, was was uh, coined. And, you know, the stocks just kept running up and up and up. And people didn't care what you paid for a stock because it was clearly going to be a lot bigger in the future, right? So who cares what you're paying for today? And some of those stocks like Cisco, it existed in 2000. It's nowhere near where it was during its peak. You can look at Siena, same situation. You can look at Akamai, same situation. Those names are down more than 50% from their peaks. And these companies, by the way, have much bigger revenue streams than they ever had in 2000. But I think it shows you that valuations which nobody really cares cared about they matter and but it may take a long time for them to matter and in that case it took you know four or five years because alan greenspan had that famous speech you probably remember about irrational exuberance but the stock market then doubled from those levels as valuation valuations went through the roof over i think four-year period and then the nasdaq went down almost 80 percent from peak to trough so I look at the current period and I go, in some ways, it's even worse because since Lehman failed and Washington Mutual failed, 
you've had an unbelievable amount of central bank money getting shoved into the markets. And you saw that again, by the way, when Silicon Valley Bank failed. And so people have been sort of lulled into, as you rightly put it, this buy the dip mentality. And they don't, unless you've been doing it for a really long time, you don't realize you could just get absolutely wiped out. And to some degree, looking at First Republic or Chegg today, as you pointed out, you know, pick your favorite name. It should be a warning sign that you really need to pay attention because the last 13 years of uninterrupted central bank expansion and the government being able to step in to save you every time there's a problem, that's not real. And the valuations you're paying for some of these companies isn't real. And the final thing I guess I would bring up because, you know, you and I lived through the tech bubble and the burst is, you know, I see some of these so-called innovation investments or funds or whatever you want to call it. They go, well, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be a trillion dollar company. And you probably remember back in 2000, like every company that went public with dot-com behind the name was going to be, you know, back then a billion was a big, big deal, right? And since that period of time, you had, I think it was 4,000 or so um, internet companies go to zero during that whole break. And so I think it's really, you have to have an incredible amount of hubris to think you understand which company is going to be the ultimate winner. And, you know, you can look at our experience, right? When you and I were started out, like Nokia had 40% market share. Then it was Motorola with, uh, you know, the Razor and, uh, you know, uh, flip phones. And then you had the BlackBerry, right? And I just saw it this morning that they're thinking of breaking the company apart or something. And then you had the iPhone. You can look at social media and you had MySpace, right? And then this company call, comes around called Facebook, or you look at search and it's, you know, Alta Vista and, you know, Lycos and, you know, Yahoo. And then there's this company called Google that shows up. And now we're talking about chat GPT and what does that do to them? And so you may figure out that this is going to be a good trend and internet's going to be a big deal, but there's a big difference between investing in Yahoo versus Google or, you know, Facebook versus, uh, you know, a MySpace, um, if you're Rupert Murdoch. So I think that's the other thing is I try to remember is that tech changes super fast, as you pointed out with Chegg this morning, and you need to be humble enough to know, yeah, I don't have a clue as how this thing might ultimately play out. I may know it's a big deal, but there's going to be a lot of wreckage along the way. And don't get stupid and think you somehow have this special insight as to which company is going to be huge 10 years from now and just ignore all the warning signs or the valuation that you're paying for them. The poster child of that right now is NVIDIA, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But you just referenced the fact that at a certain point, you downgraded most of your coverage, okay, and for what you saw from the macro coming. And, you know, that is something I remember you more about your downgrade calls, okay, how much money you saved people than some of those kind of bull market calls that most analysts at the time were tripping over each other to, to, to upgrade or raise their numbers faster. Talk to me a little bit about that mentality because I got a, a peek at your numbers at Saturi Fund. You were up last year in an environment where 
the, you know, the S&P was down a little more than 20%. It was down 27% at its lows. The NASDAQ was down nearly 40% at its lows and down a little more than 30%. And you're up this year. And let me tell you something. Whoever thinks this year is easy with the S&P up 7% and, and the NASDAQ up 15%, you, you, you know, you're not doing it right because this is not an easy year. So talk to me a little bit about your ability to pull the plug on something, okay, maybe something that's winning, but maybe something that's losing. And it really seems like that skill set has served you well as an investor now. No, absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you one of my worst trades in the last, you know, 24 months. We got along Facebook. It was one of our top picks at the beginning of last, uh, or not one of the top picks, but uh, two years ago. And then if you remember, they came out in when they reported uh, their January quarter and they mentioned TikTok for the first time. And the stock was, and as soon as I heard that on the call, I'm like, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm going to get crushed. And I think the stock was near 280, 275, somewhere in there. And um, uh, and I, I looked at that. I'm like, all right, it's down 20% in the aftermarket or so. I just need to sell because I'm wrong. And that saved me a ton of money because the stock then, as you know, went from you know wherever it was in that March quarter all the way to below 100 by the time they reported the September quarter. And they guided to that huge spend. Um, and so I think you have, to, you have to be willing to admit when you're wrong, not care about where you bought a stock, because quite honestly, I don't know when I, where, what, at what price I bought any of my stocks. I remember the time or the events around which I bought the stocks, but I don't necessarily remember the price. And that saved me a ton of money. And then likewise, we did pick Facebook as our as one of our top five picks entering this year because and you guys had me on CNBC and this was back in November of last year. And I said, look, the quarter was fine that they reported in September. Users were fine. Their revenues uh, in their TikTok related business called Reels that actually went ahead and I think it was like tripled quarter to quarter from June to September. Good user numbers. The problem was they said they were going to spend an, an egregious amount on this metaverse thing. And I'm like, but they can cut that anytime they want, right? What they can't control is whether we use the products or not. And so for me, then I was like, okay. And I went in and I bought it and I bought it in much bigger size than what I had before that disastrous March print that I was involved with. And we ended up making money last year in Facebook, believe it or not, because of it. And so I think position sizing is, is also important along with the ability to say, yeah, I'm just dead wrong. I need to admit it. I need to move forward. And so those are, I think I've, I've learned a lot more from all my screw ups than all the things I've gotten right. Because if you lose all your money, you can't make it back. If you're down 50%, you have to be up 100 to get to even. So for me, the goal is don't lose money. And that's kind of what it comes down let, to. Let me ask you this, because th that's a great, um, you know, I, I also had a similar view in, uh, in November. We talked about, I was actually with Jeff Richards at GGV Capital um, on this pod. And we were, I, I, I literally said almost the same um, exact thing is that, you know, at some point, Zuckerberg's going to have to say uncle. And and so I want to ask you, um, and, and that will be the impetus. You know, if you think about it, you know, Facebook or Meta was still making lows after the NASDAQ had already bottomed in November. Okay. And so, you know, to me, you know, there was like, it got to a point where there's really no one left to sell it. But what do you think about the hubris 
of that management team in late 2021 and and really renaming the company, repositioning the company. To me, that like just you know smacked of of, of really not desperation, but but utter fear of what was coming for that business in a way. And so to your point about that March, you know, quarter, it went from, you know, 320 to 250 on the opening print and then went from 250 down to 80 or 77 or whatever it went to. And that was really, I mean, to me, that had like 2000, 2001 vibes to it. But what about him as a CEO, as a leader? Um, do you feel like, has he learned his lessons? Is this something now up, you know, from 77 to $240 that you feel like, okay, is he likely to make some similar huge misfires again? Um, or do you think he's learned a lot from this last year and a half or so? Well, so yeah, it's a complicated question. So the way I look at it is great CEOs always make lots of mistakes. And the great CEOs then recover from those and move forward. And I think with Zuckerberg, he kind of looked at the metaverse. And, and I agree with them. There's a, there's a Bill Gates quote, which is technology is always overhyped short term and underhyped long term. And so if you think about when they went to meta, you know, the metaverse was everything and NFTs and, you know, all of this stuff. But I do think it's actually going to be a pretty big deal. And to some degree, we got to we're, we're doing it right now. Right. You and I are doing this call virtually. But the thing is, you know, five years from now or so, we may be doing a call like this where we're actually look like we're sitting in the same room and doing this podcast, even though I'm in, you know, Seattle area and you're in New York. Right. So I think it will we'll get there. And we all got used to doing these virtual meetings. Um, so I don't view it as a bad thing. I mean, I remember when they bought Instagram going, oh, my God, they're spending this amount of money for a company with this little revenues. Turns out it was a great acquisition or WhatsApp. Same thing. And so now the good news is this is nothing they couldn't recover from. Right. They said they were going to spend this amount of money when Wall Street didn't like it. As I told, I had an interview with Deirdre. I actually remember because you brought her up saying, look, you know, I think it'll be fine. He's not a stupid guy. He's going to look at this and say, well. You know, we need to cut some spending back. And then two weeks after they gave that guidance, they cut. So I think that's the other thing people need to do is figure out, well, is a stock down because it's something fundamental to business? Now, if it was their, their Reels product wasn't doing well against TikTok, their users were down because they added a lot during the pandemic, that's a totally separate problem. If it's because they say they're going to spend, you know, $100 billion, you go, well, they could always change that, right? And and that so that's why I bought it because I'm like the core business is actually doing pretty well. But they made this decision, and I think some of this is they looked at you know what had happened during 2021, where yeah, you could invest and lose a bunch of money, and you know, people will reward you for investing in NFTs and the metaverse and crypto, and you know, you pick your favorite buzzword. And then they figured out, no, the world's changed. So the mistake was saying they were going to spend that much. And they're still spending on the metaverse, but the, the stock's at a market multiple. So you're not paying a lot for it. I'm sure we'll get to Apple at some point, but this is not Apple, where you're paying a high 20s PE with the S&P trading at 19 times. Like this is, they're doing well and business is expanding. And, it's, and that gets back to that whole valuation thing that you and I lived through in 2000 where you know Amazon's revenues might have doubled over a couple of year period of time 
back, you know, 2000, I think to 2002, but the stock went down 95% before it ultimately hit bottom. And they were one of the lucky ones because they stayed in business. And you and I remember Webvan and Pets.com and the, you know, the 4,000 other companies that went to zero during that period. Um, but the valuation was the problem with Amazon, actually, and not the fact that, you know, their business didn't continue to grow. Right. Well, this, this is a good segue then. Let, let's talk about NVIDIA for a second here, because, you know, what I think is really interesting, you just mentioned. All right. So if you think about the last three years, we've seen huge bubbles, you know, kind of inflate and burst. And it was SPACs. It was unprofitable tech companies, recent IPOs, crypto, NFT, metaverse, right? Um, buy now, pay late. I mean, the list, you know, fintech stuff. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And in many ways, you could say the market cap of all these dwarfs what happened in the bear market that followed, right, the dot-com implosion. So I think about one right now where it's really being played out among Microsoft, which is a $2 trillion market cap company, Alphabet, which is, you know, a one and a half or so trillion dollar market cap company, NVIDIA, which is a 700 and billion, you know, $700 billion market cap company. Those are like, this is the battleground for these large language models, for the CapEx that's coming after it, right? For the hopes and dreams of the next five to 10 years. And this is encapsulating a lot of what you and I have spent the last 20 minutes here talking about. So when I look at them, and we're going to definitely do Apple, but I look at a Microsoft at 30 times getting kind of expensive. When you think about the likelihood of them gaining any meaningful share with Bing, to me, I'd be a seller of that right now, okay? Integrating these large language models into their productivity tools and some of their other cloud offerings, I'm all for it, but I just don't know how we can quantify that right now and what sort of multiple we're gonna put on that. And then when you think about Alphabet and the volatility that we saw around, you know, focused on Google and Bard, who knows, man? I, you know, I'll continue to bet on their search dominance and everything like that. They were established themselves as an AI first company six or seven years ago, and I'll bet there's some tricks up Sundar's um, sleeve there. Okay, but the one that sticks out like a sore thumb on a day like yesterday, this was Monday, May first. Okay, when you know the Nasdaq looked like it wanted to take a pause. Financials like made us feel like we are in another bit of a financial crisis that is not contained. NVIDIA, they were piling into because there was a blog post on their website that they are shipping some of these um, advanced chips that, you know, these companies are supposedly going to gobble up. And it was up 4%. And to me, at 23 times sales and 66 times earnings for a $700 billion market cap company, it makes no sense. This bubble will pop very similar to the way the Tesla bubble popped in the last year or so. So I led you with that one. Push back if you think I'm just, you know, like talking my book or whatever. But as long as I've been doing these business in this business for 25 years, all of these bubbles in the near term to Bill Gates, the quote that you just gave, it's just overhyped, man. And something's going to break really soon in this one, in my opinion. I 100% agree with you. The, the analogy I give is this, and I, I, I post on my um, Twitter handle at Daniel T. Niles, and a lot of them I try to end with risk to reward. And so I always say there's a difference between making the right decision and getting the right outcome. And so the example I give is if I tossed a million dollar gold coin at the bottom of a pool and it's full of man eating sharks and you jump in and you get the coin and you get out safely, that's a great outcome. It was a horrible decision, right? <laughs> and people can confuse those two all the time. So to your point on NVIDIA, and we, we actually put out a tweet on this and said we sold NVIDIA. Um, and we, we had owned it. And, you know, I've been on CNBC saying, yeah, you know, we liked 
NVIDIA, we liked Intel. But at a certain point, you go, what if they come out and they say, yeah, gaming PC demand isn't quite as good as we thought. And data center, by the way, look at Arista today. We haven't talked about that. But, you know, they were supposed to do well because, you know, Meta and Google, two of their biggest customers, their two biggest customers, you know, they reported results. Obviously, we know what the results were. They were good. And so Arista was supposed to do great. But guess what? They're cutting back on some spending on some other stuff. And Arista is getting beat up. I think it was down 15 percent or so uh, when I saw it last. And, you know, it had a very high valuation. And so with NVIDIA, what I've done is I actually bought Intel recently. And we can get into that. But unlike the, the stats you quoted on NVIDIA, you look at Intel and you go, this is probably the most hated, one of the most hated companies in all of big cap tech. Right. Because they've lost market share for five years, et cetera. But you look at the quarter and you go, wow, they crushed the revenues. The forward revenues went up probably the first time in two years that's happened. Now you get to valuation, you go, it's trading at like 1.3, 1.4 times book. Now, to put it in perspective, Micron Technology, which is a commodity memory manufacturer that has negative gross margins, not operating gross margins, is trading at a higher valuation than Intel. And Intel's market share, I think, is starting to stabilize. And so I go, and now remember, I'm a hedge fund. So for me, I can hedge that because I'm short a whole bunch of uh, cloud-related companies. So companies that have the same sort of business model or rely on consumption like an Amazon Web Services, right? Because if you go through that Amazon quarter, right, retail did great. Margins in retail were great. The stock just got clobbered, went from being up 10, 12 percent in the aftermarket to down two to three percent when they said Azure, which is or not Azure, AWS, went from 16 percent growth in the prior quarter to now it was tracking at 11 percent in the month of April and the stock got pummeled. Well, there's a lot of software companies like NVIDIA that are still trading at, you know, high, you know, 50 to 100 times earnings. But I go, their number is going to have to come down and they're not going to have a retail business with expanding margins to offset it. So, you know, you're going to need more powerful micro, more powerful microprocessors for this stuff. And everybody hates Intel. And I go, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty good at semis, I think. That's a name, I think, with PC demand down 30 percent year over year that it's pretty close to bottoming. That's a good risk versus reward, which is what you're bringing up with that multiple for NVIDIA, which is up here. If anything goes wrong, like with Arista, which we're seeing today, or Chegg, right, you pick it, whatever. And there was some talk about, oh, you know, AI will be good for Chegg because they, they can incorporate that into their learning. It doesn't look so good for Chegg today. Um, so I, I think you're 100% right. You got to pay attention to valuation. Let's let's dig into Intel for a second because this is really interesting. And you know, a lot of our listeners they act for they ask for like sort of actual idea, or actual ideas. And what you just said about the risk reward, I think, is really important. I think the risk here is not particularly great. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, when you think about revenues a few years ago, and Intel topped out at you know. Close to $80 billion earnings were about $550 um, at their peak. Gross margins were, what, 
close to 10 points higher, right? So we know that that market share loss, mix, mis-execution, a whole host of things, okay, have, have weighed on this company. And you think about what expectations are right now. I think consensus, I'm looking at facts that here, is for about 40 cents in earnings. This is down from $5.40 a few years ago. Um, gross margins um, expected to be somewhere in the, I don't know, 40-ish percent, okay? That's down from 60, excuse me, 60 in 2019, okay? And then I just gave you the, so, so you look at this, it's kind of de-risked unless the wheels are actually coming off the bus here. Yeah, let, let me let me just very, let me simplify this incredibly, right? You never want to buy a company just because it's cheap. It's just the dumbest reason on the planet. The reason I bought Intel, and, and you guys had me on CNBC a couple of years ago when Pat Gelsinger joined, and I'm like, I don't like it. Because PCs, PC demand is overinflated, just like smartphone demand is overinflated. These forecasts are way too high, and they're going to have to come down. But the big, the core issue with Intel, you got to have to go back to, I think it was 2018 or so. Intel decided they didn't want to go to EUV. And in, in plain English for your listeners, it's a, it's a way of making chips. But each piece of equipment to make this chip costs like $200, $250 million, and you can only get it from one guy, ASML. And so they thought they were smart enough to get around it by using things like cobalt and their process technologies, exotic metals, doing all kinds of manufacturing stuff to get around it. And it turns out they went from having a lead in manufacturing to falling way behind TSMC, which manufactures the chips for AMD. When Pat Gelsinger joined as the new CEO two years ago, the first thing he did was say, we screwed up not going to EUV, we're all in. It's two years later, and that's starting to pay some benefits. And more importantly, like I, you and I don't have any idea how good these chips are, but I'm pretty darn sure Dell, Hewlett Packard, etc. They're spending a lot of time figuring it out. And after losing market share for arguably five years, the market share, at least in desktops, looks like it's stabilizing. And the market share in portables is getting pretty close too. I think they're going to lose share in servers again this year until their next server product comes out next year. But you're starting to see the signs that going from we're going to avoid EUV to we're all in has now finally reached a stabilization point. And you know, people hate Intel. And I understand why, because you've gotten buried in this thing for a lot of years. But I look at this, and, and to me, it's somewhat like our Facebook trade when it first came public. And I was on CNBC going, hey, I think this is a short. Now, the reason I thought it was a short was they didn't have any advertising on mobile phones. And if you remember when they went public, iPhones had come out a few years before, and people were starting to use these smartphones. So if you don't have any advertising on mobile and everybody's switching to accessing Facebook on mobile, you're gonna have a problem. And then Facebook came out you know, a quarter or two later and launched their mobile product. And people went from, oh, I love Facebook to it's down 50%, I hate Facebook. And I'm like, this is just an advertising issue. And we got long it and we made a lot of money. So to some degree, I look at Intel the same way and I go, we hate a UV, they get crushed, lose a ton of share. Now we're all in on EUV, that's stabilizing stuff, but most importantly, I'm getting paid to take that risk with that valuation, and I can short other names that I think have huge problems right now because of what we've seen with the financial services space and the bankruptcies we've seen so far, and 
what people don't, you know, some of your viewers may not know is financial services is the second biggest spender on IT technology behind tech companies themselves. They're about 11, 12% of total IT spending of 4.4 trillion is driven by the financial services names. And those guys are now fighting to stay alive. They're not focused on spending a bunch of money. And that's going to impact guidance, which we've already seen as these companies have reported, uh, Arista most recently, um, going into the future. And that's going to affect people's views on some of these names, I think, as well. And so tech is a littered minefield right now because everybody's been hiding in those names to avoid the financial services names. But those guys spend a ton of money with these same companies. And if you miss, you're going to get punished. Well, and, and you know, you, you make a great point about financial services. And, you know, we've seen the big tech platforms cutting jobs. We've seen that for about six months now. And now we're seeing financial services really step up. Morgan Stanley this morning announced another 3,000 jobs. What do they do when they cut to the bone? Then they really have to start cutting um, you know, tech spend, right? Like, like that just has to be the next leg of this. All right, you use the term minefield. Um, and this is going to get us into Apple a little bit. I think about what AWS said about the deceleration, okay, and, and what you might be able to extrapolate that to enterprise spending, um, but small, medium business also, because I think their exposure there is interesting to me. Apple is going to report on Thursday after the close, and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about China. But I know from talking to you and listening to you, what your thoughts are, are about upgrade cycles, okay, of, and specifically in China. I think that's been a total farce for years, that this kind of, this pent up demand for these new phones. I don't know about you. I use an iPhone 12. I don't even buy the new ones. Yeah, I have better than you. I'm out of 10. Yeah. I, <laughs> again, I go back and buy the latest version because I don't want the, the, the 14 Pro or this or whatever. So I think the Chinese were also going to have a nationalistic issue about what they end up buying as far especially considering all of the local competitors not just in phones but also when you think about evs and the like and i think this is going to be a new trend here and then i think back i, I look forward to may 24th when nvidia reports and we put all this stuff together and i think may is going to be the month where we look back and say that was it for the tech trade talk to me a little bit about apple and what you're thinking into the print and then maybe flash forward a little bit um, to nvidia because depending upon how investors react to apple at 30 times okay with Ch china issues that i think are going to be very interesting to really break down and then just nvidia from a psychological standpoint and how we might wrap these three names together. And that might be, in my opinion, that might be it for the summer for tech. Yeah. So Apple, I think it just comes down to human nature. And we've already seen this play out in the US. So the argument the bulls are trying to make is, well, this is a consumer, consumer staples company. And I go look at that and I go, that's ridiculous. For one simple reason, you need food every day. You don't need to upgrade your iPhone every year. Um, and a PC from almost all of your viewers, I'm sure they have one. If you got rid of that, you'd probably have a big issue in terms of doing your job, your work, you know, your kids doing schoolwork, et cetera. PC stocks trade at single digit multiples or half what the S&P trades at. Apple trades at a high 20s multiple. Now, remember in 2019, the iPhone was introduced in 2007. So that's 12 years. In 2019, before COVID, Apple's revenues for their fiscal 2019 was down 2% year over year. Smartphone sales for the industry were down four years in a row in unit terms. 
So you already know that it's not true, that it's a consumer staple. Number two, that revenue growth went, then in March of 2021, that revenue growth got up to 54% year over year because my kids are at home from college. We had to buy them uh, new computers at home, you know, so they could uh, do the learn from home, upgraded all the tech in the house, et cetera, as COVID hits. That's, you know, so spending goes through the roof. Now that revenue growth has gone from 54% year over year in March of 21 to minus five in March of 23. And now you brought up the point on China. And I think with China, it's not so much even a nationalistic thing. The way I look at it is very simple. What did we do in the U.S. when we got unlocked? We all went traveling, went to the movies, um, did all those things we couldn't do. We weren't pinned to our phones or buying new PCs or sitting on Peloton bikes streaming uh, movies. We wanted to go out and do stuff. And China is the second biggest market for iPhones. And so I think those consumers, I mean, and you're seeing it in the numbers that are showing up from these travel-related companies where China demand related to travel is through the roof. It was, I think, 150 million people traveled you know, abroad from China in 2019, and that number was less than 10 million last year. So, and Chinese consumers are big travelers. And so I think, and so we own some travel related names, but that's, and now, now, by the way, if Apple was trading at a single digit PE, like Dell, HP, you know, you name it, I wouldn't have the same issues with it, but it's not. And so if you run into a Netflix type situation or so a few, uh, you know, a year or so back, an Amazon type situation, et cetera, with the multiple it's at, you're diving into the pool to get that gold coin. You may not make it out in, in the shape that you want. Um, and if you if you notice too, we've already had some companies report like TSMC, which by the way, it's uh, you know they get over twenty percent of their revenues from Apple, thirty to forty percent of people that ship into Apple, and they cut their numbers for June. And there've been several companies like that. So at this valuation, you know the risk to reward isn't good. Now maybe the stock goes up and you know they pull some rabbit out of the hat with services somehow. But I even think there's probably downside to that as Chinese consumers, again, are spending their money on other stuff rather than consuming services that are online. So we'll see what happens. But that's why for me, you know, you know I'll, I'll just say it. We're, we're short Apple right now again, um, and we'll probably stay short it through the print. And, you know, at that risk reward level, we'll see what happens. You know, having said that, we bought Amazon um, after the AWS debacle, um, we were short going into that print. Um, and I, I tweeted about this, so that's out there. And we shorted some consumption-based software companies against that. And so, you know, for me, it's all about managing the risk versus reward. And that's how we did well last year. And as you pointed out, yes, we did make money last year, but it was that balancing of longs versus shorts because we we had our share of blowups, um, obviously. I, I mentioned Facebook early in the year. Um, but the shorts really paid off and, you know, we ended up making money as a whole. I'm glad you bring up the risk reward and, you know, with, with a short like Apple, I mean, you know, listen, the all time high is 183. The stock's at 169, you know, the 52 week high is 175, 76. And so the way I think about it, and I obviously put more of a trader cap on than you, I am on a show called fast, 
money, which is probably why you like to go on tech check um, a bit more <laughs> than fast money. But I, I like fast money. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to be greedy the long way. Not the I, short I, way. I, I get you, man. But I think it's like a one up, two down, like risk reward, you know, e easily, or especially after you've had your 35% run and you have a stock trading 28 times for, you know, mid single digits at best over the next 12 months earnings and sales growth, you know, and, and especially, I just think that the likelihood that things get dialed up in China and, you know, I mentioned the nationalistic thing. I think that's going to be something that we're talking about a bit more, especially as some of our U.S. multinational diversified their supply chains away from China. Think about the Chinese, okay? They had a deal with Tim Cook for 25 years, okay? They were thoroughly embedded the way that they manufactured and the way they oriented their supply chains. The more that they diversified to Vietnam, to India, to maybe Brazil or Mexico or something like that, at a certain point, the Chinese are going to say, screw it. You know what I mean? Like, like we, you know, like we're going to go, they are literally, when you think about how they think about 25 years ahead of time. They're not thinking about the last, the, you know, the last 25 years. So to me, that one will be a fascinating. All right, before we get out of here, we got to talk about the macro because we started this conversation by saying that, you know, you were this tremendous stock picker as it relates to tech, but you obviously look at lots of different inputs as tech has just kind of found its way into almost every other industry that, you know, is in, that makes up the market here. But you obviously have views on the macro that soured last year, probably late 2021, especially into the area that you know the best. Talk to me about interest rates. Talk to me about the volatility that we've seen in commodities, in, in foreign exchange. What are you most focused on for the balance of this year? Because tech was about as good as it gets about a month ago. And I think the point that you made about financial services spending for tech and the interest rate environment as we battle inflation here, I think what comes for the next six to nine months looks very different than the last four. Yeah, so I think you're 100% right. I mean, we've got some charts on this on DanNiles.com, and you should go look at it. But what's easy to forget is in 2009, after Lehman Brothers failed and then Washington Mutual failed, they put passed TARP, so $900 billion to try to protect the rest of the banks. There were more bank failures in 2009 after TARP passed than there were in 2008. And by the way, the number of bank failures went up again in 2010 from 2009. And we have a chart that shows this. And I think what you're seeing today in Western Alliance um, at PacWest, you know, after Jamie Dimon, who, by the way, I think is, this, you know, one of the smartest CEOs on the planet, said, you know, we think we're through this banking crisis. He said that yesterday when JP Morgan took out, obviously, First Republic. And so I don't think this is close to being done yet because you've had 13 years of, you know, just ridiculous investments because money has been so cheap. And now we're going to have to pay the price for it. And tech has been the biggest beneficiary ultimately of that money because it's going into startups, it's going to all these guys, and then they're spending all that money with tech companies. And much like we saw in 2001, 2002, that's got to unwind. And it takes time for that to happen. I mean, we were on CNBC in November, December saying, we thought a private equity company related real estate was going to blow up. Turned out it was a bank. Um, and we think that's the next shoe to fall, which is commercial real estate. You know, we were talking about this late last year. What's happened with interest rates, to your point, the banks are really scrutinizing the loans that they're making. And I think the Fed, you know, raises once tomorrow and they pause. But I think inflation is going to stay higher than what people think. And there's not going to be the two rate cuts the market's pricing in at the end of the year, 
for two simple reasons. You know, there's 50% more jobs and people unemployed. That keeps services inflation high, which is more than half of core PCE. And second, with China reopening, they're traveling a lot. And that'll probably, and they're trying to stimulate their economy, which probably will keep commodity prices from going down as much as people think. So if you believe that combination and you look back at tech and you go, second biggest spenders, they're not going to spend. And the PE of the stock market in general, you got CPI above 3%. The trailing PE has been over 70 years, 15 times. It's at 19 times. So you don't have any valuation support for the overall market. And obviously, this ties back to what you correctly brought up on NVIDIA, having a very high multiple or Microsoft having a very high multiple. And, you know, Apple has a very high multiple as well. If stuff starts to crack, and I think to your point, you know, look at Google's quarter. The stock went down after they reported. They beat the revenues. They beat the EPS. It's got a market multiple. Look at Amazon. They beat the revenues. They beat the profitability. The stock went down after they reported. Granted, you know, obviously uh, Meta did very well. Microsoft did, did well after they reported. But, you know, there's some definite risk here, as you pointed out, as we go through May and we get some of the quote unquote sexier companies in software, et cetera, that are reporting with very high PE ratios. And I think there's a lot more Aristas like we're seeing today, or you can pick your favorite tech name earlier um, that that's reported where you go, wow, there's there was a slowdown related to financial services. And, you know, that's continuing as companies scrutinize their budgets. And so. Yeah, we'll I'll, I'll just tell you this, Dan, you know, and this is my fast money hat. When I saw Microsoft gap up the way it did that one day up 8%, okay, this is a $2 trillion market cap company, and then follow through the next day, okay, and, and rally another 4 or 5%. I don't see that as bullish. I mean, I see that as the crowding into what is a perceived very safe name that does no longer has valuation support, and that does really bears now all of the risk of a slowdown in tech spending. I mean, literally, if you're going to concentrate all of this just investment in a handful of names, NVIDIA and Microsoft and a handful of others, then they pose the risk, right? The breadth in the market is really bad right now. And then if you just look on a day like today, when you look at what crude's doing, it was just trading at 81. Today, it's down 5% at 71. If you look at the money center banks, these are two of the most economically you know, like 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 just risky sort of sectors. They are screaming in silence that what you think is going on in Microsoft and NVIDIA and Apple is not what's going on in the broader economy. So listen, you and I could have talked all day long. I, I really, really appreciate your insight on the macro, obviously your background, but also on the single names and your, your, your transparency I've always found coming on CNBC, laying out longs and shorts, coming and facing the music after, you know what I mean, things have happened. And is yeah, so unique. And get stuff wrong. <laughs> well, well, listen, it's really unique, as you know, because you probably spend a lot of time with CNBC on the background. I've been doing it for 13 years. You're one of the reasons why not only have I known you and liked you and understand your track record for as long, but your ability to continue and articulate these ideas in simple ways. Obviously, the transparency. Go to dannals.com, follow him on Twitter, people, um, and 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 tweet at him and tell him you should come back on OK Computer because I really enjoyed this, Dan. I, I hope you did too, man. Oh, I, I thought it was great. It was nice having a trip down memory lane back to the 90s with you too, Dan. Well, so I well, appreciate well, it. Well, listen, man, um, you you were uh, you were a legend back then. You're a legend now. So uh, Satori Funds, uh, thank you so much, Dan, for being us uh, with us on OK Computer. I hope you come back.
I, I definitely will. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.